Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Douglas Lockhart, Director of Investment Management from Tilney's Glasgow office, and I'm talking with Ben Seeger-Scott, our Head of Multi-Asset Funds, about what has been happening in markets this month, recent economic and political developments, and the market outlook moving forward. Before we begin, here is some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. So Ben, as we're recording this, uh, we've had an interesting week on the political front on both sides of the Atlantic, and we'll come on to talk to them um, in a bit more detail. But, but firstly, tell us about some of the key trends in financial markets during September. Thank you. So September has been back to being a risk on month. We have seen effectively a reverse of everything we saw in August. Equities are back up a couple of percent in core sovereign bonds, partly in response to, to monetary policy, but also the wider geopolitical backdrop. We've seen uh, sovereign bonds sell off, so yields have moved higher. Actually, if you look at the US 10-year Treasury yield, which is obviously a key benchmark, that rose at one point as much as 40 basis points. I mean, 0.4% doesn't sound a lot when we think about equities. That's a huge amount when it comes to, to fixed income. So we saw a quite sharp rise wiping out all of the moves in August and more. More recently, they've sort of come a little bit back in. So US at the moment, we're looking around about 1.75% on the 10-year yield. And in the UK, we're still looking at about half a percent, which is higher than it was, but still pretty low overall. And I think if you put that in the broader context, we're seeing a lot of range trading this summer. Actually, if you look year to date, after that very bad Q4 that we talked about at the start of the year, we then had a rally from the new year that lasted a few months. Since then, it's really been range trading. We've had good months, bad months, but it's just been undulation. Um, And to me, that really highlights there's not a huge amount of fundamentals to grab hold of. Sentiment is swinging markets around, but fundamentals have largely remained relatively subdued. And of course, the other thing to highlight during the month, of course, the oil price spiked in response to the attacks on the Saudi Arabian oil field. That's uh, an area we've had quite a lot of questions from clients and the impact it's likely to have. I think at this stage, it's worth highlighting the impact is likely to be extremely muted. Obviously, the day itself, there was a big spike in the oil price. Already, you know, a few days to a week later, the oil price had fallen back to where it was at the beginning of the year. And that's because even though people will look at the spot price, that is the price to buy oil right now. And the reason that spikes is everyone thinks it's going to be a lot harder to access it in the short term. We can look along the yield, uh, sorry, the, the, the curve, the commodities curve. So that tells us how much it costs to buy the commodity in the future. And actually, spot price may have spiked up. But if you're looking two, three months down the line through derivatives, it didn't really move. And this tells you the market expects uh, that the, there will be adjustments to bring supply back online. Other routes can come in. We've already seen the Americans and others talk about releasing their strategic reserves. So at the moment, that spike in the oil price has dropped back. So it's not having a sustained impact 
on uh, markets broadly. That is not to say if things intensify in the Middle East into a broader geopolitical event, that might start to have more of an impact. So something we're watching closely, but in isolation, it was a spike up, down, and back to, back to normal. And just on monetary policy, we've seen the, the Federal Reserve and the US and the ECB both cutting interest rates over the last couple of weeks. Um, what do you see as the outlook for, for global monetary policy? I think it's interesting the, the route that we've taken. We've gone from, as we were last year, to potential tightening, to neutral, and now softening. And what you're seeing now is the opposite of last year. If you recall, last year we were talking um, all about dovish hikes. So central banks, particularly the Fed, was hiking interest rates, but having very soft dovish overtones. Now it's the reverse. Now we're getting cuts. We're getting looser monetary policy. But we have both the Federal Reserve and, to some extent, the ECB loosening policy, but being very guarded and cautious around it and not saying the message that the market actually wants, that here's free money, we'll just keep on pumping and everything will be okay. They're being very cautious. And I think there are a couple of very interesting points, particularly with the Fed and the ECBs. As you highlight, the Fed cut interest rates by a quarter of a percent to the upper bound of two. So they're now moving in a trading range. The US has a trading range rather than a target between 1.75 and 2%. But interestingly, they have these dot plots, and this is the expectation of each of the, the members of the Federal Reserve Board and governors where they think interest rates are going to go. And actually, that median forecast hasn't changed, and that is forecasting no more for this year. That seems a little optimistic. But what's interesting, if you look at the spread, the median dot hasn't changed, but you're seeing sort of a shifting out between the two. So even though the median hasn't changed, you've got more members that are, are looking for uh, for more cuts and more members looking for potential hikes in the future. So you're really seeing the camp start to be split. I think it's also interesting we've had a few more dissenters. So the Fed votes on what they think is the, the, the medium outlook and they have a discussion, say the, the chairman says, right, I think this is the, the view of the committee. People tend to vote in favour. We've had a few more dissenters this time round, and that's really highlighting um, that the Fed and elsewhere, this, we're starting to get into the realms of monetary policy becoming a little harder harder to execute. Um, it is worth saying, even though the Fed forecasts no more cuts, the market still expects at least one more cut for this year in the US, and that's largely baked into the price. And there was a similar story in Europe. The ECB meeting was even more interesting so the European Central Bank has cut interest rates further by 10 basis points further into negative territory. So the deposit rate in Europe is now minus half a percent. Uh, but there's several interesting factors within that. Firstly, they cut the deposit rate. They've also introduced tiering. This is something we've talked about before. The problem that you have if you're uh, a bank in Europe, when you put these uh, your, your funds on deposit with a central bank, just as an individual might put their savings with a bank, the banks in turn put their excess savings with a central bank. And if they're being charged a negative interest rate, but you can't really pass that through to, to normal savers, corporations you can, but individuals, there'd be uproar. Just think here, if the bank started charging you a negative interest rate uh, on your savings account, there'd be uproar. The same in Europe. The effect though, is that the, it acts a penalty on those banks because they have to pay the charge and they can't pass it along. And it's been a problem for a long time in Europe. We've talked before about tiering. Well, now they've introduced that. So a certain amount of the deposits of banks, the central banks, won't be charged this strong negative, strongly negative rate. So they've finally introduced that that should hopefully um, ease some of the burden on European banks and make it easier 
to pass that money through. They've also restarted their quantitative easing program. It's starting at about 20 billion euros per month. Interestingly, that's a little bit more supportive than people expected because it's open-ended. It's not the amount. It's the fact that ECB has said, we're going to start it and we're not going to stop until we're basically back at our inflation target of 2%. And there are some other bits, some TLTRO packages. These are lifelines to, to other banks. I won't go into the details. Suffice to say, they did quite a comprehensive package of monetary support. But the reason I say it's interesting is, again, we're getting more dissent. And we saw subsequently reports that even though the, the governing council ECB passed it, a lot of the Northern European uh, elements on the board were relatively resistant to the idea of restarting QE. Indeed, in the last couple of days, we've seen uh, the German representative, so the German board member for the ECB, resign over this uh, loose monetary policy. And I think that's interesting for several areas. It's showing both in the UK, well, partly in the UK, but in the US and, and in Europe, even at the monetary policy central bank level, there is resistance to, to further QE. And I think that that's potentially highlighting a point we've made repeatedly. Monetary policy is getting to the end of its useful life cycle. It's increasingly akin to pushing on a string. And as central banks have been calling for for a long time, it really seems like fiscal policy is needed to further the economic, uh, economic and market cycle from here. So just tell us a bit more about that fiscal policy stimulus um, and the impact that that could have on the economy and markets. Well, I think fiscal stimulus, there is a sense that it's better, better late than never. Ideally, you do monetary and fiscal stimulus at the same time, just following an economic downturn. That hasn't happened. The last downturn, because it was led by debt, you had a lot of governments going into austerity mode instead. But effectively, monetary policy, lowering interest rates, introducing QE is very good for financial assets. It's a little bit indirect, the impact it has on the real economy. Fiscal policy tends to be a lot more effective. When you have uh, infrastructure spending tax cuts, that tends to go to people that have a much higher propensity to spend. So if you're going to build infrastructure projects, you hire people to do the design work, to build the, the actual, whatever the, the infrastructure project happens to be, to man it, and so on and so forth. They tend to be at the lower end of the, of the wage spectrum. And we know um, just, just empirically, those individuals have a higher propensity to spend. If you give them money, they're more likely to go out and spend it. Whereas if someone's portfolio goes up in value, they have a higher propensity to carry on saving that. That's the difference, one of the differences between monetary and fiscal policy. And fiscal policy can be very effective, particularly when you have low interest rates. Uh, I think one of the areas that we are concerned about, though, Fiscal policy, as I said, is needed to extend the cycle. The challenge, I think, if particularly in the US, you have a relatively tightly constrained economy, unemployment in the US is very low, capacity utilisation is very high. If you have a tight economy, you have very low interest rates, and you start putting in fiscal um, stimulus, that's a recipe for inflation. And if you have inflation, all bets are off. Central banks have little choice but to start, start hiking interest rates. So if we do see fiscal policy it will have to be very carefully calibrated. And I think there are there is evidence out there that fiscal policy is likely on its way. It's probably going to be more in developed markets than, than emerging markets. You just got to look at the UK. We already have the government talking about fiscal stimulus, spending that headroom that the previous chancellor built together, his Brexit war chest. The government's already talking a lot uh, about spending that. 
If you look in the US, President Trump has floated the idea a couple of times of using the income from the tariff potentially to deploy that in the form of tax cuts. That probably works in his favour because that will give a feel-good factor to the electorate going into next year's presidential elections. Notwithstanding, most people don't realise that it's the American people themselves that pay the tariff, not the Chinese. It still talks to uh, talks to the potential for fiscal stimulus. And even in Europe, which has been in, in a very uh, severe austerity mode, we're starting to see movement. And that's where I think it's most interesting. We've already seen uh, announcements from the Netherlands that they're going to increase uh, government spending, so infrastructure projects, uh, and introduce more tax cuts. The point we made just now when there is resistance at the ECB, particularly from the Northern European countries, to further QE, and the fact that Mario Draghi, the ECB president, is on his way out, replaced uh, in the next few weeks and months with Christine Lagarde from the IMF. And Christine Lagarde is regarded as much more of a political operator, much more sympathetic to the political backdrop. So I could see a situation where you have a new ECB president that's much better at arguably networking and, and playing the politics. You could see the logic if within the ECB there's resistance from the Northern European countries to further QE. You could go to those European governments and say, look, if you don't want me to do more QE, we need stimulus from elsewhere. You have the ability to do fiscal stimulus. And as we see the Netherlands uh, talking about fiscal uh, fiscal stimulus, that puts some pressure on Germany that also tends to be relatively uh, fiscally tight. I think that puts pressure on them to potentially loosen some of the purse strings as well. So there's potential for it to come through, but it does need to be very carefully calibrated to make sure we don't give, build ourselves an inflation problem on sort of 9, 12, 24 months sort of time frame. Just turning to the um, the trade war between the US and China, talks are obviously still ongoing. We've seen signs of slowing economic growth in, in both countries. You mentioned there's the, the presidential election in America next year. How do you see the trade talks playing out and, and what will the impact be on, on the global economy and, and markets? Uh, the, the global economy, I think, is very much geared for a muddle through scenario. That's where we've been for, for a couple of years now. And that is the environment that not necessarily that the global economy can thrive, but it can survive and, and struggle on. It's when you have these intensifications that things start to get a little bit more challenged, particularly given how complex supply chains are. It's not just about the US and China. It's all of the supply chains, the other emerging markets that supply parts to China. It is the, the interplay. You know, A lot of developed com, com, uh, countries, take the likes of Germany, even the UK, we've got imports and exports. Quite a lot of products start here and potentially components are exported out to China and, and emerging markets imported back in. And, and supply chains can be quite complicated. Uh, I think there is every expectation that Donald Trump will want some sort of trade deal, uh, and, and there is rhetoric around that. What we have seen, though, and you know, this is not just US and China, this is across the board, lots of political misinterpretation. Things seem to be getting close to some sort of deal. Small actions are perhaps misinterpreted. Most recently, um, the, this view that China's tried to roll back on some of its commitments, you could argue that's them just maybe trying their luck thinking they could get away with a little more than they could. And a very sharp reaction from the US has got us back into a resurgence of the trade war. So it is very difficult to call. And, and the last thing I want to do is, is go on record on this date saying it'll be okay and for it to go wrong, because obviously it swings around a lot. What I would say, advisors on both sides know that an ongoing trade war is not good for the economy. 
And it really is the interplay between economic incentives and political incentives on both sides to try and, and keep their, their populations and electorates on side. There are, as always, signs of potential uh, positivity, but that can easily go into reverse. I think the two points that, that I would highlight, though, most recently for this month and the developments, firstly, is the, the deal that Japan is likely to do with the US. Japan has been um, doing very, very well out of these latest tensions. Actually, we've talked about, we've talked before about some of the, the Japanese car makers moving their plants from the UK, and a lot of people putting that down to Brexit. That's nothing to do with Brexit at all. They haven't moved the plants from the UK to Europe. What happened while the US has been uh, launching these protectionist measures, Japan's been going around doing free trade deals. So actually, the reason these car plants have gone back to Japan is because of all this trade war. Japan has, has done a, a trade deal, a trade deal for no tariffs with, uh, with Europe. So they don't need a car plant here anymore. Similarly, as we stand now, it looks tentatively like Japan is going to sign a trade deal with the US. So I think that's one of the interesting developments. Most importantly, we're waiting to see whether that then extends to trade deals potentially with the US and Europe. And obviously, the pressure between the US and Europe is, is a sort of Damocles hanging over particularly the auto. So very, very much focused um, on, on Germany. And maybe it's worth highlighting, we've seen John Bolton, the national security advisor, Donald Trump's security advisor, fired or resigned, whatever whatever you want to, to consider in the last couple of weeks. Now, John Bolton is an absolute hawk, more militarily, so I'm not sure it has as much impact perhaps on the US-China trade talks as it does, say, with the impact on oil in the Middle East. But I think having one less hawkish, aggressive voice at the top table probably helps lead the way to, to a potential easing of tension. So as always, the potential for a resolution, but politics and bombast perhaps could, could put pay to that. And closer to home in the UK, we obviously have to discuss the Brexit situation. We've seen Parliament resume this week after the Supreme Court ruling. What could that mean for the chances of leaving the EU on the 31st of October with or without a deal? Um, or could there be a further extension or a potential election? How, how do you see things playing out? Well, um, the short answer is I have no idea and it's probably moot by the time that this podcast goes out because now that, that Parliament's back... It's very difficult to know whether or not you know the the Ben Bill that's forcing this extension, whether that gets executed, modified, um, resignations, uh, snap elections. It's it, it's very hard to tell. What I what I can tell you though is that there's been very little market reaction to you know the 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 resumption of Parliament. Uh, markets are now so used to this drama; they're looking at the fundamentals. And nothing has really changed. The likelihood of a no-deal uh, Brexit remains, in the broad scheme, relatively high compared to where it was. But it's not most people's base cases. Increasingly, it's, it's a more significant probability. If you went back six months, whilst we were talking about, and I know we mentioned it on the podcast, we think it is not likely, but it might happen almost by accident. Now it's a much more, more aggressive policy. All sides want some sort of deal to come through. What I would say, if you look at the markets, both markets and business to some extent, markets and businesses don't need certainty. Don't get me wrong, that would be great. Certainty, be it a no-deal exit, a hard Brexit, soft Brexit, or staying in the EU. Businesses, businesses would love some sort of certainty. At the moment, all they really need is enough to muddle through. And I think that near-term threat 
of a disorderly no-deal Brexit is what's holding businesses back. And it's the, the extreme uncertainty. Any sort of medium-term resolution that at least lets businesses get back to um, capital expenditure, replacing machinery, hiring people, that will be good for the economy. In the absence of that, the extreme uncertainty continues to do damage to the domestic economy. Thanks, Ben. Well, plenty to keep a close eye on over the over the next few weeks. We'll be back again next month with a new episode. If you have any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thanks for listening.